Now, I would imagine that many of you uh, watched college football yesterday. I would imagine that some of you even went to a college football game. And as someone who's an Oklahoma State fan, uh, this, is, this is feeling like one of those seasons of Oklahoma State football that reminds me of my childhood, where they're not as good as I want them to be. But there is a moment before every OSU football game, right before the game as it starts, where I feel like my team, and maybe even me too, can just overtake the entire world. And I'm led to do that through what is called a hype video. Maybe you've seen the hype video right before a college football game where, where every loser in the audience goes, man, all of a sudden, I could run through a brick wall. Our team could run through a brick wall. No team can outshine us. And I think in many ways, hang with me here, I think in many ways, Nahum serves as a hype video for what God will do against his enemies. These people would have received this book feeling battered and oppressed. They would have received this book feeling like they're the losers in life. But what this book really does is it shows a highlight of God's power and glory, recognizing that no one can withstand his judgment. I think a way to view this book and how it serves us today is to see the mesmerizing hype of God's glory coming for his people's salvation even through the judgment of his enemies. We see, we see this happening in other books of the Bible. You think of what the book of Revelation does. Many people are fearful of the book of Revelation. They, they're scared of it. They stay up late thinking that it will haunt their dreams. But in many ways, the book of Revelation was actually given to the church in order to encourage the church by saying, look what your God will do in order to save you and crush everyone who has oppressed you. In the same way, that, that's what the book of Nahum does. Look at what God promises to do for all of, against all of evil in life. Now, the prophet's name, Nahum, actually means comfort. That's how we can get a glimpse of what this book is intended to do. It means comfort. And that's surprising to us because Nahum appears as anything but comforting. That is, if you're God's enemies. It is not a comforting book. The context here is that God's people found themselves in the middle of the 7th century B.C. when Nahum wrote this book to these people. But I want you to imagine, put yourself in the context of those who would receive this book. So there's the book written to a group of people, but then it's also written for others who would receive it. The people who would receive it are war-torn. They are belittled. They're an exiled nation, regularly wondering why life seems miserable for them. Receiving word, though from God's prophet, that their cries will finally be heard. Their enemies will truly be crushed and their God will deliver them. It is incredible news to those who find themselves on the side of the Lord. Now, friend, I imagine that many of you are here today wondering if God's justice will ever be poured out the wickedness within your own life. You feel the world around you. You feel the war-torn battering against you. And you're being led to wonder, is this how it's always going to be? Will God's justice ever be poured out against his enemies? Maybe you feel like your prayers are regularly unanswered. You feel like the bad guy always gets away with injustice. You find yourself hopeless and feeling like you're the waste in life because good times never seem to be had. This is where Nahum has a word for you. In 47 verses in total, it's a voice, think of it, of a jealous justice that roars with fury from God himself. Nahum announces God will stand with this people and judge their enemies. So with this 
what, that's what this vision is all about, is God's promise to destroy the Ninevites utterly as judgment for their sins. So let's get into it. I think the book is separated into three clear parts. Um, the whole book itself is all about God, and so that's how I've separated that. If you have an outline on one of the bulletins in front of you, there are three, I think, distinct sections of, of how God is unfolding this oracle against his enemies. And the first part of this book, I think, clearly just portrays the kind of God we're talking about where God is portraying himself as a glorious, overwhelming warrior. You see the characteristics of God himself in the first part of the first chapter. I wonder if you've ever thought about what God is like. And we can know what God is like because he has told us, in many ways, all over the scriptures, exactly what he's like. We have so many pictures. They're heavenly, they're providential, they're apocalyptic of what God is like and how he operates. And in Nahum, one way that we see him fully and completely is one who is in charge of everything. And you're either in charge of everything or you're not. And God is portrayed in this book as being completely in charge, allowing him to actually lay waste of the enemies around them because they, they serve him. They're under his foot. But look at how this God who is in charge is portrayed. Verse 2, jealous and avenging avenging and wrathful, keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, slow to anger, great in power. His way is a whirlwind and storm. Verse 4, he rebukes the sea, makes it dry. Keep, keep this image of a warrior in your mind. Things, people, nations, wither. Mountains, quake. Verse 5, before him hills melt. Earth heaves before him. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? The heat of his anger. Wrath is poured out like fire. Rocks are broken by him. He's good. He's a stronghold. He's a refuge. But he's also an overflowing flood, making a complete end of all those who pursue him as an enemy. Now, verse 6 there, it asks the question, who can stand before this indignation? The answer is obviously, with all those words, no one. God is shown as a glorious warrior, one who is fully capable and willing to smash and bring havoc to an enemy. And he's going to do so in full language terms in chapter 3. But it says he's jealous. He who is he is and doesn't want anyone to worship a false god. He's jealous of his people. He wants to be the one and the only true one in our own hearts. But he also says at the same time that he's patient. He's not quick to anger, Nahum tells us. In this repeated characteristic, we see of God throughout all the scriptures, that he's patient and he's faithful. He's patient all the time. But his patience, his long-suffering, is not permanent. And it should never be taken to indicate that he's indifferent or passive. We often think of patient people as those who just allow everything. You know, maybe you've got Maybe you've got a rowdy kid and you see that kid with a parent who's just kind of indifferent to his rowdiness. You know, I think some of us have so many kids that we can't even hear the clutter of the noise. The rest of us can't. But you can't even hear the clutter of the noise. That, that may mean that you're indifferent or it may mean that you're patient. But God's patience is in no way showing that he is indifferent towards sin or evil. This all-powerful, jealous God has committed himself to the truth and to avenging his name. He'll not leave any guilty unpunished. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, uh, this book serves as an encouragement to you, even at this part. Uh, so let me encourage you to, to work to better know and to better understand the jealousy of God. 
how much of a wonderful characteristic that is of him. He doesn't want you to pursue the things that build up idols in your life. He doesn't want you to keep storing away things in your own heart that distract you from him. He wants you to see him on a regular basis, knowing that it will always prove good for you to pursue the Lord. God is right to jealously require our exclusive worship of him, and he's the only true God to do so. Now, can you imagine how pathetic it'd be to worship a God who doesn't care about our own worship? We often, don't, we often think that things that we do when we worship the Lord don't really matter. We want to be really good, though, at worshiping the Lord because our God requires right worship of it. But can you imagine a God who doesn't care about you worshiping him? He's all-powerful, he's all-glorious, but he doesn't care about what his creatures done. The, the scriptures actually portray him in the opposite way. Our God is committed to his glory and desires us to be most committed to him, knowing that this is for our good. Now, I bet when you hear the phrase, God is committed to himself, or God is committed to his own glory, as just modern-day Americans, that, that stings a little bit. We want God to make all of his work about us. But we need to recognize that there's no comparison between us and God. He wants to bring most glory to himself, and he talks about it all over the scriptures. He wants himself to be worshipped. And so God demands here complete allegiance, total affection of you. So in response to those demands, I think it would be helpful for you and I to consider, maybe for the rest of the day, what you and I or who you and I have in our lives that rival that pursuit. God wants us to focus on him. He wants his glory to be made known to the ends of the earth. And what, what do you have in your own life that actually is a detriment to that pursuit? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a process. Maybe it's actual literal idol. Maybe it's something that you do on a regular basis that's actually competing with your allegiance to God. So as a response, we should think about things like this. And we need to pray about them. If we find that there's something like an idol in our lives, we need to pray boldly that God would remove that. God would give us affection for his, his name over other things in the earth, recognizing that God wants to grant that for us. God will help us to pursue him most clearly. He delights not only to save us, but actually to grow us into the likeness of a son. And that's not going to be had by looking at other things other than the likeness of a son. This is how Nahum is comforting and encouraging for us, and that it should strengthen our own confidence in God. Because the one who we go to, the one who we worship, the one who we focus on is a glorious warrior, not some wimpy thing. And so we need to view God as big and powerful and sovereign. And viewing God as big, viewing God as powerful, viewing God as sovereign, on and on, is so comforting. He's the Lord of time. He's the Lord of history. And that's what God's people are called to believe, even while the, the mighty Assyrian Empire in the context of this book, is actually attacking them and plundering them. Nahum didn't call Israel to believe that God always does what seems fair to humans. Nor did he say that God lets life take its natural course, unable to promise us anything. No, Nahum assured the people of God that even when God allows, in the context of this book, when God allows 50 cities to be attacked and destroyed and the people to be tortured, he remains sovereign and will ultimately do what is most just in his own eyes. As mysterious and difficult as that may be to comprehend, that's our hope. Hope in a glorious warrior as described by his own word to his people. Now, friends, knowing that some of you are battling and knowing that a lot of you are just battling stuff in your life, we need to remember to look ahead 
think about this individually. You need to look ahead to the king, but also you think of this corporately, us as a church, the things that are maybe impacting us from the outside, maybe the things that are impacting us on the inside. The goal in life in pursuing Christ is never to go backwards, but keep our eyes forward and go to him. Not with fear and not with cynicism, but we look to the future with confidence, knowing that our sovereign and jealous God is good and will do what is right. This book serves us as an encouragement for today because of what happened in that day. Not just two decades after this book was written were the Assyrians, who were the enemy in this book, were the Assyrians completely crushed, completely leveled. And you and I go through life wondering, will God ever wreak havoc on his enemies? The promise of this book is that he has and he will when he comes again. So we have a view of this glorious warrior, but we also see secondly within this book that this warrior is not only glorious, he's also very focused in what he's about to do. So look at the final piece of chapter 1, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, and then all the way into chapter 2 of verse 2. You'll see the turn of Nahum from the character of God to now his focus. God God addresses his enemy and also slightly addresses uh, his own people. So he's aiming at these people, Nineveh. God's people have been afflicted. Their necks have been weighed down, it says, with oppression. Their bodies have been bound, in verses 12 through 13, with with shackles. And we see this historically where the Assyrian people, where Nineveh was, so the audience of this is Nineveh, the Assyrians. The Assyrians dominated this whole region in the 8th and 7th century B.C. The capital city, the capital city of the Assyrians was Nineveh. So he's going, he's focusing straight on them. And you can find Nineveh on a map in the country of Iraq, just north of Baghdad a little bit. It was one of the grandest and most powerful cities on earth. Nineveh was one of the grandest and most powerful cities on earth. Its size, its power, its wealth were inspiring. And we know this because the Assyrians kept great record of all that they did, of all that they crushed, of all that they conquered, of all that they built. They were really good. You can can read this. I don't think you can touch it. Um, I found it on Wikipedia. But you can read this in the, uh, one of the museums in London where they have all these books or these scrolls and these different things where the, where the Assyrians were talking about how glorious they were. At least two series of walls surrounded the city uh, as if one wasn't good enough. They had a second wall and they combined these walls to where the width of three chariots could race around. Quite the town. The inner wall, the higher of the two, was about 150 feet high and broad enough for so many people to walk around and race in. And on the outside of these two walls was a moat 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. This was just one city with all of this power. But you remember Nineveh, where Jonah preached to these rebellious people. That happened a century earlier. So you see the account of Jonah. He didn't want to go to to the Assyrians. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted them to be punished. And in some ways, his wish was granted, though, 100 years later. But when Jonah went to Nineveh, you remember what happened. They responded to the gospel call, and they repented. But then it was just three generations later, about 100 years later, where God looked out on Nineveh, saw them crushing his people, and then promised to lay waste of them, gave them a chance, gave their grandparents opportunities. Their grandparents took it. And as we see so many times, what's grasped is then assumed, and what's assumed is then lost, where God now has these people against him. We know from surviving Assyrian records that the Assyrians destroyed almost 50 cities that had belonged to Judah, God's people. Graphic pictures of destruction survive 
to this day, showing impaled men and dismembered bodies, victims of the Assyrian push into Judah. This was a mighty place that thought to have been secluded, and it would have been God's people who were hiding away in caves. And it was during this time when the greatest power in the world was cutting Judah's limbs, torturing, uh, torturously approaching its heart in Jerusalem that Nahum promised God's revenge against his enemies. And it's right here that we find the book's enduring relevance to today. God's people could not have had a worse day under dire circumstances than they did here. And we recognize and see that there are so many Christians around the world who are physically being tortured or emotionally being put out by family members or friends, and they may wonder, will will God ever wreak havoc on those who hate his name? He did. And God continued to call them through his prophet and his word to trust in him as much as ever. The book of Nahum presumes that people, especially God's people, will have a hard time in this world. It presumes that people, especially God's people, will have a hard time in this world. So Christian, realize that you claim to follow the one himself who, allowed to be, who was allowed to be humiliated in this world, who allowed himself to be born in a way that might have led all the neighbors to think that his birth was illegitimate, who grew up in a poor family in the backward part of a backward nation, who had no fixed address as an adult, who endured the scorn of the nation's leaders, who after some briefly exciting but unstable popularity experienced betrayal by his friends and then by the crowds, who then allowed himself to be hounded, arrested, falsely accused, tried, whipped, beaten, stripped, and finally crucified to death, all to bear the sins of the people like you and me. The the promise of the wrath that would be poured out on Nineveh we see in the scriptures, is the very same wrath that was poured out on Jesus himself. So you and I look at the world around us and go, will God ever wreak havoc? A turn on that is, why would he not wreak havoc on you? Recognizing that you are just as sinful as these Ninevites. But he didn't, out of love for you, knowing that he still poured out his wrath on Jesus himself. As Christians, we realize that it's this one whom we follow in the midst of a world that seems like it's following the other way. As Christians, we must realize that God is good and that he is our only hope. He's our only way of escaping not only this tendency of pouring wrath out on other God believers, but also just the natural pursuit of our own sin. We cannot depend on ourselves to save ourselves. We cannot depend on our circumstances. Sometimes we forget this and begin to put our hope in our circumstances or in other people or in ourselves because life is going well. Our hope must be, though, in the sovereign God who gives all these things. He's our restorer and the Lord of the future. And Nahum says, God, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Now, I wonder what it means for you to trust in God today. I don't think any of us are under the same circumstances of these Israelites that happened 2,000 years ago. I don't think we're at the risk of being impaled by an enemy or our limbs being torn apart. But you still wonder, how can you trust in God today? And frankly, no one else can answer that for you. Today, though, have you considered that you are completely dependent on this sovereign God 
that your lungs have not drawn one breath, nor your heart pounded one beat apart from him. When you woke up this morning and put your feet on the ground, did you realize that all of that movement was designed and executed by him, but that also your feet were then laid upon ground that he created? Or the fact that you would not have had last night's rest or this morning's fellowship apart from his own decision? Have you meditated on the gospel or on God's faithfulness to you? So we, we see that God has focused his pursuit both against his enemies in the second part, but also, it says in verse 2, for the sake of rescuing his own people. Now, this may seem like a tangent, but hold on. In our church, you think about our church locally, our church Crosspoint. In our church, our worship gathering should be times where we regularly rehearse, song by song, prayer by prayer, scripture by scripture, where we regularly rehearse our dependence on God's love in Christ's righteousness. We often think of church as something to do at the end of the week when we've exhausted every other opportunity, but rather recognizing that it is the beginning of God's work where we come in, war-torn and tired, to be lifted up and remember God's glorious work. We need Him to forgive our sins. We need Him to lead us. We need Him to provide for our needs. We need Him to reveal more of Himself to us so that we might know Him better. Our Lord's Day gatherings should renew in our own hearts the covenant that God has made with us. And this is under the context of God being a focused warrior. We remember him, his promise, his word, because here in this book, we see that our God, our warrior, focuses in on his enemies. And this passage says, for the sake of his people. Thirdly, we see toward the end of, or for the end of this book, starting in chapter 3, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 13, we see a warrior who finishes what he aims to do. He's a fin- our God is a finishing warrior. God is shown by Nahum to not only focus on his oppressors, but to finally end and finish them off. Now, most of Nahum is about God's enemies, and for good reason. These tormentors were powerful and cruel. We know from extra-biblical sources that the mighty Assyrian king in this time wanted everyone to know who they were to worship, not, not the God of God's believers, but of other gods. There's a, there's a historical account that says, as for those common men who had spoken derogatory things about my God, this is the Assyrian king, I tore out their tongues and abased them. I smashed the rest of the people alive by very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed my grandfather. Their cut up flesh I fed to dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky and to the fishes of the deep pools. It's at these type of people that our finishing warrior is aiming to execute. And this is what the Assyrians were really famous for. They had walls, they had wealth, they had power, but they could kill. Yet God was not intimidated by them at all. God will not be mocked at all. God will not be put up against the wall and finished off. Nahum's remarkable book, written in the face of such an awful and awesome earthly power, reminds these enemies of God who is and is not sovereign. Now, some hold that the text uh, we're in becomes confusing. You, you see the, the back and forth of chapter 3. Who, who is he talking about? Is this, is this the Ninevites? Is this God's people? I think it's intentionally like that. To, to kind of raise the question, okay, who's really in charge here and who's really being beat down? He's reminding these enemies of the God who is and who will be sovereign. The anticipation is building 
through all of this. The way that the book ends is unbelievable. The sense, the suspense helps us make the prophecy more absorbing and finally more powerful. But it comes to an end when we learn of that awful destruction awaits these Ninevites. The point of the whole book of Nahum is made most explicit in the last verse of the second chapter where the Almighty God says to the mighty Assyrians, I am against you. And more serious words cannot be imagined. God is not just saying that he will desert Assyria or separate himself from Assyria. He's not saying he'll build up a wall between them and they can worship their God over there and his people will worship their him altogether, but he is promising to actively oppose them. I am against you. Friend, I think you should meditate on that phrase and imagine what it would be like to have the Lord God look at you and say, I am against you. His patience with its sinful ways in their case has ended and the self-imagined invincible empire will be defeated. He'll stop them from having descendants. He'll destroy their idols. He'll bring down to their temples. It's amazing that the city of Nineveh actually wasn't even rediscovered or found until midway through the 18th century. They were looking for walls. They were looking for temples. They were looking for these idols. And when they finally found the boundaries of this place called Nineveh, the only thing that they could find was ash. Everything had been brought down to the point of no one could even see what was once there. Had it not been for their own record-keeping, which, don't you know, God just upholds in some museum in London to mock them by saying, everything you thought you could do, it's not there anymore. Nineveh was a lion that used to kill. But God forecasts in this word that he'll become a cat that is lost in the desert. Nineveh was known by being a, a harlot, a prostitute, but will now be exposed in her filthiness and made an exi- exhibition. Nineveh, Nineveh's end was absolutely traumatic. And when the site of ancient Nineveh was finally discovered and excavated in the 19th century, archaeologists found no stores of silver and gold objects that they were hoping they would. It was absolutely empty, and everything was taken, or in chapter 2, verse 10, truly stripped of its glory. After pillaging the city, invaders then burned and razed it, to the ground, these first archaeologists found deep layers of ash. When Nineveh fell, it fell very hard. Friend, you may be enjoying some measure of power or success now. You may be in your high times. Everyone around you may be saying, you know, woe and glum and Eeyore all the time, and you may be saying, man, this is pretty great. 2023 is my time. But I hope you realize how fast and how far you can fall. The God of the book of Nahum is not only the God over his people, he also executes justice against everyone who has sinned against him. Three times it's repeated, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. And the glorious reality for the believer from the book of Nahum is that God would not ultimately abandon or forget his people. That's why for as dark and as chilling as Nahum's straightforward depiction of God's justice are, his book is actually very comforting and gives great hope to God's people. Can you imagine being so worn, torn, and receiving the book of Nahum, and finally going, yes, make it rain. The Lord will make an end to all of his foes who wrongly and maliciously oppose us. Now to conclude, only two of the minor prophets in their book with a question. The book of Jonah, also about the Ninevites, and now the book of Nahum. Nahum has set a scope 
a scrope's crosshairs on this Assyrian king. It goes directly to the king who's representing all these people. He said, all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And so, friend, the question for us, as the question was for them, the crosshairs that's on the king, we recognize that it's also on us. The prophet is drawing your attention back to Jonah's prophecy a century, century earlier. Once there was mercy given, but eventually Nineveh rejected God's mercies for a violent materialism, gross egotism, idolatry, and witchcraft. Nineveh is actually not that different than our time today. But in the final chapter, Nahum promises that Nineveh would be completely drunk. They would act like drunk, they would be drunk. And that figurative language means that the city would be required to drink the cup of God's wrath to the bitter end. And sure enough, that city fell. Now, we often see the the symbolism of a cup used throughout the Bible, where there's a cup of God's wrath. And it's always used to portray as the enemies of God drinking it, meaning like you're almost drinking your death. And we say that these people will do this. We saw in the book of Jonah that those people would do the same, that unless they repented of their sins, they would be drinking the wrath of God. It's It's a haunting symbol that someone would do. You think of someone intentionally poisoning themselves, and that's in part what living in sin is, and that is also in part what it means to fully reject God, that you will drink your end. But then we also come to the New Testament where there was one Christ Jesus who had a cup before him and asked the Lord, if there's any other way for your justice to be had, please take this cup from me. But then what did he do? Knowing that that was the way that God chose to save his people, to conquer enemies, to overcome sin, to lay waste to all the awful that will happen to those who don't repent. It was him who drank that cup of God's wrath. Figurative, we see him doing that, but practically we see him fully doing that on the very cross where he went valiantly, a glorious warrior, a focused warrior, a finishing warrior, to where he was up on on that dead tree that was cursed and says, it's finished. I've drank for my people. But then what does he do the night before? He does that. What are we going to celebrate later on today? He says, this is my blood. Take and drink. Christ drank the same cup of God's wrath for us as people. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, it says, May this cup be taken from me, yet not I will, but as you will. This is the cup that he meant, the cup of suffering God's wrath for our sins. Christ had committed no sins for which he would need to drink the cup, yet he drank it for your and my sins if we would repent and turn to him. In the New Testament, God's judgment fell most sharply not on any city, but on Christ Jesus. And when God's judgment fell on the Son, the Son defeated all of God's enemies and ours. Through his death on the cross, it says in the book of Colossians, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The final battle will not consist of the fall of any mere city, but it will consist of the ultimate judgment of God's enemies and the establishment of God's reign over God's people. And we can be confident that this will happen. Why? Because God will bring salvation to his people through the judgment of his enemies. Friends, you and I look at the book of Nahum in many ways, are terrified, or in many ways are going, what in the world is happening? But we should seek it with great courage, knowing that this very wrath 
that was poured out on Nineveh, that was promised there, was the very wrath that was poured out on the Son of God so that you and I, in the caves of society today, can rejoice and be glad in our conquering hero. We have nothing to fear, Paul says. We have nothing to be ashamed of because the glorious warrior came and finished all of his work for his people. Let's pray.